Join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in together. Well, Father, we're glad that uh, you're not waiting for us to crown your son. Uh, you, you did that. We know, because your word tells us, that after he lived and died and you raised him from the dead and then he ascended to your right hand, you seated him there and gave him the name which is above every name, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. You crowned him as a reward for his perfect obedience. Now it is our job to recognize that crowning. It is our privilege to see his glory, his majesty, his exaltation. It is our privilege to know him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we can't wait until he carries out that role in every fashion, spiritually, physically, on this earth, in the new heavens and earth, however that's all going to play out. We can't wait for the time when in every respect he exists, he acts, he is recognized by absolutely everything as the crowned one. Even so, Lord, come quickly. In the meantime, we pray that you'll use times like this where we gather books open in front of us, your Holy Spirit present, and we can see uh, what you tell us about him and his life and his death and resurrection and what you think of him and what you say about him and how you want us to, to, to look at him and feel about him. And we, we're glad for this. We need this desperately. You deserve what comes from this. So help us this morning. I pray that your spirit will work with power and wisdom this morning. I pray that your spirit will not only interpret the word of God for us correctly, but then help each of us as we try to apply it in our own lives. We're each different. We have different relationships. We have different responsibilities and duties. And so the word of God will play out in our lives in, in very different ways on the very same day. We want it to be from the word of God. We want it to be consistent with the truth in every way. So we need your Holy Spirit to help us to apply your word this morning in a way where Christ is magnified through our lives, in a way where you get a lot of pleasure by watching what we do for your son, in a way where people are drawn to Jesus, seeing his beauty, seeing your glory in his face, in a way where we get joy from living the Christian life for Christ's sake. We can't do all of that. You're the one that has to make that happen. So that's what we're asking for this morning. Use your word in the hearts of your people, for the glory of your Son. And I pray it all in his name. Amen. So what does it look like uh, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to, to act as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I guess is, is more accurately what I'm talking about. What does it look like when someone is learning from Jesus Christ? That's literally what a disciple is, a, a learner. Someone who follows, listens to, is taught, learns. So what does it look like when someone is learning from Jesus Christ and putting what they learn into practice? What does that look like? What will real God-given faith do when it's present? James makes a big deal about faith without works is dead. Faith is uh, evidenced by works. If, if faith is given by the Lord, 
that person, that believer, will do certain things, will live in certain ways, will carry out that faith in, in life. What's it look like? How can we give Christ what he deserves? Gladly. Sincerely. We've been looking all through Scripture at individual lives for answers to those questions. We've been looking at biblical characters, people that I think we would all agree by now were true disciples. We've looked at their lives. We've seen the characteristics. These were true disciples. So what did Christ-likeness, what did discipleship, what did real faith look like in their lives? What did they believe and what did they want and what did they say and what did they do rightly that we can learn from? So we looked at Joseph of Arimathea. You remember that name, right? He was the man who was a part of the Sanhedrin, but he was not complicit in the murder of Jesus. He, he did not agree with all the false witnesses and, and all the lying and all the schemes to get Jesus convicted and get Jesus killed. He didn't. Why? Because he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Secret until the crucifixion. Seems like after watching the suffering, after watching the death of Jesus Christ, there was no more secret discipleship for this Joseph. That's when he went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus and went to that cross and took the body of Jesus down with his own hands and carried the body of Jesus and buried that body in his very own tomb where he would be recognized as that, having that association with Jesus from that point forward. Joseph of Arimathea. We looked at another Joseph, Joseph who was nicknamed Barsabbas. This was a guy who had followed Jesus pretty much all of, of Christ's public ministry. So from the time John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River to the time of the ascension, this Joseph, Barsabbas, was there with the followers of Jesus. He was so well known by the followers of Jesus that they nicknamed him for what they saw in his life. He was the son of faithfulness. He was, he was the loyal one. He was the dependable one. He was, he was the one that everybody knew could pretty much always be counted on to be doing the right thing, the thing he was supposed to be doing, the thing he was given to do. In fact, out of all the followers of Jesus, he was chosen as one of two candidates by the group of followers to replace Judas. Who is the 12th apostle going to be next? Well, it's going to be either this Joseph or it's going to be Matthias. They picked those two candidates. God picked Matthias. Um, we don't know much about Joseph after that, but it seems like he continued as he had been before, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, doing what he was given to do to serve the Lord. We then looked at another Joseph, actually Joseph. We know him by the nickname Barnabas. We looked at him. Um, I'm not there yet. Now we look at him, right? Uh, we think Barnabas probably believed as part of that group of Jews at Pentecost. Seems like that's probably where he was introduced to Jesus first, or at least the truth about Jesus, after he believed, he immersed himself in the body of Christ. Didn't, didn't go back home, stayed there in Jerusalem, and he was a part of that early group of believers living together, eating together, worshiping together. We know also that this Barnabas put himself out in a lot of ways. He, he, he did it with his money, selling land that he owned to bring the money for needy believers in Jerusalem at that point in time. But he also put himself out using his spiritual gift. He'd been gifted to speak. And so he did that traveling with Paul, sharing the gospel to lost people all over the place. But he especially did it in the church. When he saw people who needed him to speak the truth to them or for them, 
he would put himself out to do it. Even coming to the defense or coming to the aid of people who weren't well-received, who, who, who weren't trusted, like Paul when he came to meet the apostles for the first time. Like John Mark, when Paul had a grudge against him. We know Barnabas stood up for him and used his words to come alongside Barnabas. And so we see a lot of things from Barnabas that, that's a true disciple and things that we learn from his, him as well. Then last week, there was this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, that show up so much in Luke's writings. Um, we know they lived and worked with Paul in Corinth. They were all tent makers, and so they shared that in common. Maybe, we don't know for sure, but maybe this couple heard the gospel from Paul first. That's where they started believing in Corinth. Maybe, it can't prove that, but it seems kind of likely that that happened. But after they believed, they served the Lord together as a couple. You don't see them apart. You don't see them individually. It's always this couple serving the Lord together by serving the Lord's people. Paul said they even risked their neck to do it, to protect him, to serve him, to to advance his ministry. They risked their necks to do that for him and for others. We find them, we found them moving to where the church needed help, from this place to that place, that place to this place. Wherever the believers needed help, they they seemed to move there, and they seemed to do the same thing no matter, matter where they moved. They would open their own home so that congregations of believers could meet under their roof. And so they were all about Jesus being the center. Center for them as a couple, but also the center for God's people. And they were willing to to put themselves out there and take a risk and be known, not only as believers, but as leaders of the believers. Oh, the congregation meets in Aquila and Priscilla's house. So if their enemies wanted to find a church pretty easy to know where to find it. Go look for Quill and Priscilla, and that's probably where they're going to be. So each of these disciples was unique because every human being is, every Christian is unique. So these were unique, but all of them, we found, shared something very similar in common. Remember what it was? Exposure to Christ made them what they were. Each one of them, even Aquila and Priscilla, individually, exposure to Christ made them what they were. The clearer, the longer, the more intense their exposure to Christ, the greater their discipleship to Christ. Because what they saw of Christ produced what they thought of Christ, produced what they did for Christ. We saw that in each one of these lives, and I think you see that in every life of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, today's character is going to fit that very same mold. But today's character is a little different in one respect. All of these folks, most of the information we have about them was after their exposure to Christ. What did their lives look like when they, after they were exposed to Christ and then as they lived on for year after year after that? That's, that's mostly what we saw with these folks. Our, our disciple this morning, our character this morning, most of the information we get about him is surrounding his initial exposure to Christ when he first ran into the truth about Jesus Christ, what happened. And so it's so going to be a little different kind of a slant on discipleship this morning, but I'm excited about it. So if you're not at Acts chapter 16 yet, I, I took it off the screen, get to Acts chapter 16. While you're turning there, let me lay the groundwork for you, set the stage a little bit, give you the setting. When you get to Acts chapter 16, Paul and Barnabas have just split up, and you remember why, right? They had that disagreement over John Mark. First trip, John Mark was with them, but he left. He went back home to Jerusalem, 
We don't know why, but we do know Paul wasn't happy about it. So now they're getting ready to go back out again. Paul and Barnabas are. And Barnabas brings up the idea of taking John Mark again. Paul's having none of that. No, that's not going to happen. I'm not having it happen. Barnabas dug in too. I want it to happen. It's going to happen. And so their contention got so so sharp that they they went their, their separate ways. You remember, Barnabas took John Mark, his nephew. They went back to Cyprus, which was Barnabas' home. Paul, on the other hand, chose Silas, and they did what Paul and Barnabas had wanted to do together. They left out from Antioch, and they traveled back to the churches that had been founded on Paul and Barnabas' first gospel trip. When they got to Lystra, something else happened that we're aware of. There in Lystra, Derby, that area, they, they met a young disciple named Timothy. And that's where the union started between Paul and Timothy. Timothy left home, started traveling with Paul and his group at that point in time. They spent a little time in Galatia at that point. And then after being in Galatia, they tried to go southwest down into Asia and take the gospel down there for the first time. But Luke says the Spirit didn't permit that. We don't know what that looked like. We don't know how the Holy Spirit stopped them, but it was very clear to them that the Holy Spirit was not wanting them to go down there. So they tried a plan B, tried to turn instead and go northeast up to Bithynia, but the same thing happened. The Holy Spirit didn't allow that either. And once again, we don't know how how he made it clear they weren't supposed to go there, but they knew that. So instead of either one of those two directions, they went west over to Troas, And while they were there, that's where Paul got that vision of the man from Macedonia pleading for them to come over to Macedonia and help them. So it was clear to Paul and his companions that this was of the Lord, this was of the Holy Spirit, and so that's exactly what they did. They got on a boat, sailed northwest to Macedonia, landed there in pretty much lickety-split, made their way to Philippi because that was the foremost colony in that region. It was the oldest, the most important, the most highly thought of town in that particular area. So they got there, and they did what they always did. They they started looking for a synagogue. They started looking for believers. They started looking for a place to preach the gospel. And they found out about this group of women who would meet down by a river every Sabbath day. Her name, Lydia. You know that name, right? So Lydia and these other ladies, it was their custom Probably, maybe, because there wasn't a synagogue in that town. And so they would have their own little meeting, Jewish meeting, to to worship and and primarily pray together down by a river. Paul found out about them and started meeting with them, preached the gospel to them. And Lydia had her eyes open, had her heart open to believe the things that Paul preached. So Lydia became a believer. Her family also started believing at that point in time. And Luke and Timothy and Silas and Paul ended up living with, staying at Lydia's home while they were in Philippi after that initial time together. Well, that brings us to our scene in Acts chapter 16. So I want you to look at verse 16, Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and I'm going to read down through verse 23. This will be part of our context for this morning. Acts 16, 16. Luke writes this, now it happened. As we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, 
turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and they said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. All right, so before we get to our character, let me just make a mention of one of the other characters in the story because she's kind of fascinating. You've read this passage many times before, and this slave girl obviously shows up every time you read it. And I don't know about you, but she's always fascinated me. Who she is, what she's doing, Paul's interaction with her, it just opens a can of questions. I'm not going to say can of worms, but just questions about her, what she's doing. Why is she doing this, and why did Paul handle her the way he handled her? I mean, why would she, possessed by an evil spirit, this is not the, not the Holy Spirit, this is an evil spirit, which is why Paul cast it out, but why would she, possessed by an evil spirit, be following Paul around, telling the truth about Paul? I mean, if, if that spirit is controlled by Satan himself, which it is, why would Satan want to keep making announcement over and over again of the truth about Paul and who he represents? Have you ever asked yourself that question before? You should. And the answer is really quite simple. You know, Satan works that way, doesn't he? Satan doesn't show up with a pitchfork in his hand and red suit and horns coming up off of his head and fire coming out of his nose. He doesn't show up always blatantly lying and saying nothing but the truth because he knows you don't catch a lot of flies with that stuff, right? You need to come across where people aren't shocked by you, they're not put off by you, come across in a way that might be actually attractive to some people. So very often, Satan and his spirits and his human representatives will use truth. We'll use differing amounts of truth to be attractive, to be winsome, to, 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 to not put off people who are considering the truth or believe the truth. It's attractive, and, and you suck them in long enough with, with part of the truth until you can start putting error in with the truth. And you mix it all together, and before long, they don't know what's true and what's false. It's just all the same thing. So don't be surprised by the, the announcement that this, this demon-possessed slave girl is, is making everywhere she goes. It, it does make a lot of sense. But if she's telling the truth about Paul, why did Paul stop her? What was it that annoyed him so much or had him so put off? Why in the world would he cast that demon out of her when the demon is, is using her to speak the truth about him and Silas and their group? Well, think about it. If Paul doesn't do that, if it just continues, here's Paul and Silas, they're preaching the gospel, they're saying the truth about God all the time, here's this demon-possessed slave girl, she's saying the same thing, and what do people end up thinking? They're on the same team. They're from the same source. He's saying, Paul's saying this, she's saying this, it's the same thing. Obviously, they're coming from the same person, they're, they're representing the same God, and so we can listen to Paul, we can listen to her, and we'll end up getting the very same message. She'll lead us to the same place. Paul is leading us, and, and all of a sudden, you've got those two mixed up, and there's, a, there's, there's an association between Paul and this demon-possessed girl, and the people don't know the difference. Paul's not having that. 
Paul's not going to let that take place. He knows exactly what Satan is up to, and he wants to make sure there's a stark difference between the way people see him and his message and her and her message as well. And so, in case you were ever wondering about this slave girl, keep those things in mind as you, as you look at what she was doing and what, what Paul did about her. But that she's not our character. Our character showed up in the last verse that I read, verse 23. When they had laid many stripes on Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. There's our character this morning. It's the Philippian jailer. That's the way we always recognize him. And so we want to talk a little bit about his life and look into his life this morning and this initial, uh, his, his initial bursting onto the scene and what we learn from him and through him. So we don't see any previous contact between this jailer and Paul and Silas or the believers in Philippi. We don't see any of that. We can pretty much conclude he wasn't a Jew. I don't think he would have been the keeper of that, that, that jail, that, that Gentile Roman prison, if he had been a Jew. Um, so that probably means he wasn't meeting with the Jewish people down by the river every Sabbath day. So he probably wouldn't have known Lydia or the other ladies in that group. And he wouldn't have met Paul at her home prior to this because, once again, he wasn't exposed to them because of who he was and who they were. His job was to run the prison. And for a prison keeper, that was a, it's like a farmer. That job is, is you never get off work. It's a 24-7 job. You've got to make sure those prisoners are kept, and, kept secure at every hour of every day. So probably this Roman prison keeper was not out on the streets to have heard what that slave girl was saying about them all the time or to see it when Paul cast the demon out of the slave girl. Can't prove that, but it's very unlikely that he would have been out there to have witnessed that himself. I would guess he probably wasn't even at the hearing before the magistrates. So when Paul and Silas were drugged before the authorities and they kind of had their hearing and, and, and this claim and charge was made against them and the magistrates came to the conclusion, it doesn't seem like this jailer was at that hearing to have known about Paul and, and their past already at that point in time. All we see from the word of God is that his first contact with Paul and Silas was probably when the magistrates drugged them after beating them, drugged them to his prison and commanded him to keep guard over them. That's the first time we see him in contact with Paul and Silas. And after getting his orders, what did he do? Well, look at verse 24. Having received such a charge, he, the Philippian jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So we don't find the jailer asking a bunch of questions. Really? What did they do? Well, did you get plenty of evidence for that before you charged them? I mean, do you really think I need to treat them harshly or, or cut them some no questions at all? We don't find him giving his opinion about them or what they had done or whether he believes it or not. You don't see him showing them any mercy because he feels sorry for them. All you see from the Philippian jailer at this point in time is obedience. You see him doing what he was charged to do. You find him doing to them exactly what he did to all the other prisoners within his building. It's his job to incarcerate them. And that's exactly what we find him do when we first finding him doing when we first see this Philippian jailer. 
And it's obvious, too, that this man takes his responsibility very seriously. What did they tell him to do? They told him to keep them, keep Paul and Silas, securely. Now, I know you've got some different synonyms out there in your translations. New King James says, keep them securely. Literally, this means don't let them fall. When someone falls, something's happening to them that they don't want to happen. And that's the idea here. They took Paul and Silas to the jailer, and they said, don't let anything happen to these guys that we don't want happening to them. Now, that could go a number of directions, right? I mean, the first thing that comes to your mind is, don't let them escape. Or, don't let someone else come and break them out. Or, don't let their enemies come and inflict more injury to them. Because they're hated out there on the street. We know that already. So, don't let anything happen to them from folks from the outside as well. Any number of those things could take place. All of them, these magistrates don't want happening. So, Philippian jailer, make sure none of these things take place. So, how did he do that? He put them in the inner prison, not out near the gate where everybody comes in and goes back out, not in the outer wings, the outer rim where he had a view of the outside. This is the inner prison. This, this, is, this is inside. This is walkaways. This is down in the depths of, of the prison building. I'll put them there. And you think about his reasoning. It makes a lot of sense, right? If anyone was trying to break them out or anybody was coming in to try to attack them, if they had to go all the way to the inner prison, the, the most inward spot of that building to get them, they're going to have to walk by a lot of other prisoners and a lot of other guards to be able to get there. And if they do get to them, to go back out with them, if they're trying to break them out, they're going to have to walk by a lot of other prisoners and a lot of our other guards to get out. The chances of them being caught first are, are much higher. So it makes sense that he would put them in the inner part for that very reason. And just in case that wasn't enough, if they still had designs on breaking out themselves, I'll put their feet in the stocks so they can't even move or be moved. So, so you can see this man, he's received this charge. You keep them securely. You make sure nothing happens to these guys that we don't want happening. You make sure they don't do anything that we don't want them doing. All right, so these are the steps I'll take. He is taking his responsibility very, very seriously. So that's what we see of him at first. The next time we see him is in verses 25 to 27. So look there. Let me read these verses. Let's make a few more observations, okay? Verse 25. But at midnight, seemingly the same day, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everybody's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Okay, so the earthquake woke up the jailer. He immediately finds the prison doors, the prison gates, all the doors, any doors that people can come in and out of. I don't know how many there were, but he checked them very quickly and immediately found all of them were wide open. And naturally, he assumed what? Prisoners are gone. And, and that's a logical assumption, right? Most criminals, if they get a chance to, to go free, especially in the darkness, 
they're going to take that opportunity. And so he automatically assumed that that's what had happened. And it was also logical for him to assume that he would be held accountable for that. And he's the one that was going to bear the brunt of the punishment. He's the one that, that they're going to look at and say, it was your job to keep them from, from, from going free, not just Paul and Silas, but the rest of them as well. And so because they're all gone now and you can't find them, it's on you and you're going to reap the, the whirlwind for this. Logical assumption. Now, someone might say, might try to argue on his behalf, but wait a minute, it was an earthquake. I mean, no one's going to hold him responsible for an earthquake setting prisoners free, right? Well, but just remember, we're, we're trying to get into his head. What is he thinking? He's about to commit suicide. Why? What is he thinking? Well, he was just woken up suddenly. And how clearly do you think when you're aroused suddenly out of a deep sleep? Foggy for a few minutes. So it's very possible that he woke up, saw those prison doors open, and he's panicking because he's just not thinking through everything yet. He doesn't have time to think, oh, okay, well, the prison doors are open, but it was, a, it was an earthquake for crying out loud. They're not going to help me, hold me responsible for what happens in an earthquake, right? He's not thinking that far ahead yet because he was just woken up. Or... Maybe he knew that an earthquake would not be a good excuse, that they wouldn't care that there was an earthquake. Your charge is to make sure these prisoners are kept imprisoned no matter what happens. Earthquake or no earthquake, you're responsible for those guys. Maybe he knew that, and so it didn't matter. He still knew that he was going to suffer the consequences. In either case, rather than face humiliation, rather than face the punishment, he chose to avoid the shame and avoid the pain by committing suicide. So what happened then? Verse 28. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Now, I don't know how Paul knew he was about to commit suicide. We know it's dark in that prison. We're going to see that the, 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 the jailer had to go get a light to be able to go to them. So it's hard to believe that Paul would have seen him starting to kill himself. So did he hear something? Did he hear the jailer talking to someone else? Did he, did he hear the, the jailer panicking out loud and make some kind of statement that made Paul realize this guy's about to, to, to kill himself? Don't know. Was Paul given divine revelation here? Did the Holy Spirit come to Paul at that moment and say, you need to do something right now because that jailer is getting ready to commit suicide? We don't know. We, we don't have the answer to that question, Okay. All we know is what Paul did. Knowing he was about to commit suicide, Paul stopped him from committing suicide by reassuring him that all the prisoners were still there. And this is when, at this point, it's where we start to see signs of faith in this Philippian jailer. Look at verses 29 and 30. We keep going. Verse 29, Then he, the Philippian jailer, called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, I don't know about you, but that question really surprises me. This spot, by this man, what's just happened, I would not expect him to be asking that question. I could see him going to Paul and asking him, what are you still doing here? I mean, why did you all stay? That question makes sense. Now, I would not have been surprised by him asking that question. I could even see him thanking Paul for staying. Man, 
I didn't expect anybody to still be here. I wouldn't have expected you to have stayed here. I wouldn't have stayed here if I was a prisoner. Thank you so much for sticking around here and not, not fleeing. I could even see him thanking all the other prisoners for not running away too. But wanting to know how to be saved? Saved from what? Because by this point in time, he knows they're all still there. So by this point in time, he knows he's not going to face punishment from the magistrates. The authorities aren't going to kill him because all the prisoners are still there. That's what he was worried about before. By this time, by the time of this question, how can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's not the issue. Be saved from punishment. Be saved from execution. Be saved from imprisonment myself for letting go of the the prisoners. That's not an issue at this point in time, okay? So what kind of salvation is he after? What is going through this guy's mind at this point in time? Well, to me, it is very, very telling that as soon as he gets a light, what does he do? He runs straight to Paul and Silas. They're not the only prisoners in there, right? Because it says the other prisoners were listening to them. There were other prisoners. Why does he run straight to Paul and Silas? Well, remember verse 25. Look back there again a second. Verse 25, Luke writes, But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay? So we see those two, those two, those two that he went and sought out after the earthquake, those two, by name, are the ones who had been praying and singing hymns at midnight, and the language is, to the God, They were praying to the God and singing hymns to him over and over again. And they were doing it loudly enough to be heard, loudly enough for the other prisoners to hear what they were doing, exactly what they were doing. And Luke says they were listening to them. It's not like they said, would you two just shut up and stop that nonsense? No, they they were listening. The other prisoners were paying attention. Where was the jailer when that was going on? Well, verse 27 said, and the keeper of the prison awaking from sleep, So the earthquake had woken up the jailer. He had fallen asleep at some point in time. But does that mean he had missed all of their worship service? Does that mean that as soon as he threw Paul and Silas in the inner prison, he went home, went to bed, didn't know anything that had happened after that? I don't think so. In fact, when you watch what he says, what he does, what he asks for, You start to think, I start to think very seriously, that what he's doing is tied directly to something he had heard before his nap, before he went to bed. Something, he had been exposed to something, he had heard something that now is coming back into play afterwards. Now again, consider what Paul and Silas had been doing before that earthquake, praying and hymning, H-Y-M-N-I-N-G. Literally what this language says. They had been praying. Now, praying what? None of your translations have the words of their prayers. Prayer, mine don't either. But we know what prayers sounded like back then. We know what good prayers contain. I mean, every good prayer is full of praise to God. Every good prayer, the prayer is bringing out attributes of God, great things about God, things that he appreciates about God. That's part of every prayer. And also, remember why Paul and Silas are in Macedonia at this point in time. Go back to verses 9 and 10 very quickly. 
Same chapter, chapter 16, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Why are they in Macedonia? Well, right there is the reason. They are in Macedonia to help the people of Macedonia by preaching the gospel to them. That's the very reason they came. That's why they've stayed. That's what they've wanted while they are there. And so you have to wonder, did the Philippian jailer hear Paul and Silas praying about that mission? I mean, I think that's what Paul wanted everywhere he went, no matter what it cost him and no matter what means God might use to give him the opportunity to preach the gospel. Had he been praying that way? Had Silas been begging God, Lord, do something to give us an audience for the gospel. Do something so that we can proclaim your greatness and your salvation through your son, Jesus Christ, so that we can deliver the great news of salvation to people here in Macedonia who need to hear it. Is that a prayer? that the Philippian jailer had listened to before the earthquake? Is it far-fetched that people would pray that way? Put a finger in chapter 16. Go back with me to chapter 4 very quickly. Luke chapter 4, because it's not the first time somebody has prayed that way. It's not the first time apostles have prayed that way. It's not a new way of thinking. Acts chapter 4. This is before Paul comes on the scene, Paul and Silas, obviously. Here you're dealing with Peter and John who have just been arrested by the Sanhedrin, interrogated, and then turned loose. And when they were turned loose, they went back to the body of believers, told them everything that had happened in their interrogation and in their hearing, and that led to the whole group led by the apostles doing something. Acts chapter 4, look at verse 23. And being let go, they, Peter and John, went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Ironic, huh? A prayer from Christ's apostles, a prayer for freedom, support, a platform, help to be able to proclaim the gospel with boldness, and right after the prayer, what happens? An earthquake. Amazing. So again, you come back to Acts chapter 16. Had the Philippian jailer heard something similar? 
Had he heard Paul and Silas saying some of those very same things that I just read in Acts chapter 4 from the other apostles? Asking for some of the same things before this earthquake took place? It's worth considering. They were praying. What else were they doing? They were singing hymns repeatedly. This was over and over again, not just one. They didn't just pick the the favorite one out of the blue book and sing that and go on to bed after that. The language says they were hymning. They they were singing hymns over and over and over again. Now, once again, just like the prayer, we don't have the lyrics to the songs that they were singing. So we don't know for sure. We do know that most of the time back then, the early Christians would sing songs that the Jews had used to worship Jehovah. Made sense. The early church was mostly Jewish, and so they're going to pull over the psalms that, that they sang when they gathered together to worship. It's usually what the early church did. Even when Jesus was finished with that Passover meal with his disciples on Thursday night, what did they do before they went out together to the Mount of Olives? They sang a hymn. In some translations, say plural, hymns. Again, we don't know which ones, but this was something very common for that early church and for the Jewish believers in that early church. You look at the songs that the Jews used, the songs that are recorded in Scripture, and and you find themes, you find commonalities. I mean, most of those songs are exalting God and his attributes, who he is, what he is, his works. A lot of the songs will look back to particular works where he exerted his power in his faithfulness to his people, providing for them, protecting them, defending them from enemies who were trying to attack them. These songs would look back to what they knew of God, and then they would write those in lyrics and songs, and the people would sing them together to God about God. Can I give you some examples? Very quickly, very quickly, go back with me to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. I'm not saying they sang Psalm 24, so don't misunderstand me here. I just want to give you a sample of what their songs may have sounded like. Psalm 24, very, very quickly. I say quickly, and you'll get there before I do. All right, so you you know this psalm. I'm sure you've seen it numerous times. Language is just incredible. But, But notice the themes. Notice the subject matter. Notice the topics of the song. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Everything belongs to God. Why? Because he created it. He's the owner because he's the creator. He's the sustainer. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who can go up high and get to where God is? Or who may stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Selah. Pause and think about that for a second. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. The Lord who has armies. Armies of people. Armies of insects. Armies of every created thing. He is the King of glory. Selah. Again, I'm not saying Paul and Silas were singing Psalm 24. 
I am saying I'm pretty sure they were singing a song that sounded like that, who had the same themes about the same God, same attributes of God, maybe some of the very same works from the past for the very same reasons because much of the, much of the music literature that was used by the early church was that very thing coming from these people and what they had experienced. Can I give you another sample? Go out of the Psalms back to Exodus chapter 15 with me very quickly. And when I say that, some of you already know where we're headed. Here's one of the most famous songs in all of Scripture. And the Jews sang it together often. Exodus chapter 15. And just by where it is in your Bible, you know this is following right on the heels of major works of God. And he will bring that out in the beginning of this song. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. Whose horse and rider? Pharaoh. This is right after the Red Sea crossing. This is the Red Sea crossing, but not for Pharaoh and his army. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captives, captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. Don't you love those songs? I mean, these songs that the early, that the Jews sang and then the early church sang, these songs are just full of the, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the, the exaltation of God, the transcendent position and nature of God, the, the, the wisdom of God, the faithfulness of God. Th- th- these songs bring out the fact that he is the creator of all things and the owner of all things and the sustainer of all things. And, and this is the God who is faithful to his people and defends his people against all attackers. He defends his own honor against those who hate him, and he defends his own people against enemies who want to do away with his people. All of those songs had these themes to some degree. Now again, thinking back to Paul and Silas singing in the prison that night at midnight, we don't know exactly which hymns they sang, but it makes me think by the, by the jailer's reaction after the earthquake, it makes me think that he had heard some of that music. It makes me think that he had heard some of their prayer at at the very least before he fell asleep, before the earthquake. Because you think he wakes up and what he finds, what he sees, it's obvious, first of all, that no man opened the doors to that prison. He knows very well that no man broke off all the chains from all the prisoners in, in, in that prison at one time. That that was not done by any human being. That was a supernatural act that it caused that to take place it was a supernatural event and it happened right after paul and silas were worshiping a very specific supernatural being right after they're praising 
this supernatural being. Right after, they're making requests of that supernatural being. So what conclusion would this Philippian jailer reach? That this God of theirs, this supernatural being that is worthy of their praise and their requests and their dependence, that he is real. That he is present because he just shook this building and broke chains free, opened the gates of this building. He's not just real, he's present and he's all-powerful. And he seems to be obviously responding to his two servants. He seems maybe even to be responding to how they've been treated. Maybe this God is angry that his two servants have been mistreated. And oh, by the way, who's one who was involved in their mistreatment? The Philippian jailer. I am a party to this. I'm the one who took the servants of this God into the innermost prison. I made that decision, not the magistrates. I made that decision. I made the decision to put their feet in the stocks. And you wonder why he's asking the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is not about him wanting to be saved from the magistrates and authorities who might want to punish him. He's got somebody bigger on his mind at this point in time. Somehow, some way, probably by what he heard from Paul and Silas before he went to sleep, this man understands that he's not standing before human authorities. He's going to have to answer to the God who is big enough to shake the ground that he's standing on. And he's probably done things that have angered that God, and he's going to have to face the anger, the wrath, and the justice of that God for how he's treated that God's servants. So why wouldn't he want to know how to be saved? And where would he go to find out how to have salvation from this God? Where would he go to the two guys that he heard talking about this God? To Paul and Silas. Surely they would know. They're the ones who have a connection to this God. They were the ones who were praying to this God. They were the ones that were singing hymns to this God. They were the ones that the other prisoners listened to as well, singing praises to this God. And I think the jailer had been listening as well. And it's very possible that in the midst of all those prayers, in the midst of those songs, he even heard some language about salvation, about this God being the God of salvation. Maybe about Paul and Silas wanting to share the good news of salvation to Macedonians. Maybe this guy had heard language about salvation from the very God that he wanted to be saved from. And so who does he go to? It was to Paul and Silas, straight to Paul, a beeline to Paul and Silas. Now, I want you to think, if you left, if you're in Exodus, go back to Acts chapter 16 very quickly. And I want you to think very quickly about the radical change that's happening to this man. I mean, as this man is confronted by, with this God, this God of Paul and Silas, as he's confronted by that God for the first time. Notice the dramatic change. Verse 29. Are you back in Acts 16? Verse 29. Then he called for a light, ran in, and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, now get this. Just a few minutes earlier, a few, a few hours earlier, we'll give him that much time. This guy is in complete control of the situation. 
This guy is, has full authority over Paul and Silas and every other prisoner in that building. Just a few minutes earlier, he's looking down on them. They're the convicted criminals. They're the inmates. They're the prisoners. I am above them. I have complete control over them. Just a few minutes earlier, this man needs nothing from these two guys. This man has no fear of these two guys or anything about them. This man has no compassion for these two guys. This man is offering no help to these guys. He's just sending them to the deepest, darkest part of his prisoner prison, and he's locking them in there with no thought whatsoever of their God. Just a few minutes, maybe a few hours earlier. But now, after this earthquake, after he's been exposed to this God in some way, what's he doing? He's running, not walking. Once he's got light, (laughs) I love that, once he's got light, he's running to find these two guys. And he's going to them with great humility, even great fear. He's falling at those feet that he had just recently put where? In those stocks. And now he's falling at those feet. He's freeing them, and he's bringing them out from the place where he personally had taken them. And he is urgently, passionately begging for their help. The men to whom he offered no help just earlier. Now he's desperate for what they have, for what they know, for who they know. Folks, that is, I don't even have the word, that is, that is a radical transformation. I mean, just an uh, an instantaneous, immediate, complete transformation. And his question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Does it remind you of anything else? Remember Pentecost? Peter preaching at Pentecost? Preaching in front of this big old group of Jews. And at first, as they listen to him preaching the truth to them, what do they think? This guy's drunk. He's been drinking since he got out of bed in the morning, and what we're hearing is just the the blabbering of of the drunk guy. But as they listen further, what do they hear? They hear things they've never understood before. They hear about who they say is their God and what he's been doing that he's been promising all along. They hear that Jesus is not who they thought he was. They hear that this Jesus that they were glad was condemned for being a blaspheming heretic. They finally hear and understand he's not that at all. In fact, he's Messiah. He's the one that God chose and sent to be king and savior. And when they when they hear that truth and their eyes are open to see that truth about God and his son for the very first time, how did they respond? They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Because what they saw of God, what they saw of Christ made them see something else and made them see themselves as they really were. They saw how wretched, how guilty they were. Could there be any worse sin than murdering the Son of God sent by your God to be your Savior and your King and you murder him? Is there any greater sin than that? Could there be anything more horrific that you can do against God than that? That's how they're suddenly thinking. And they're thinking, what will God do to us for this? What do we deserve for this? Could there be any justice too great against people like us? And so their automatic response was, is there any possibility? 
Is there any way whatsoever? Could there be any hope of mercy for people like us who have done something so terrible against such a great God and his incredible son? That was their response. And here you have in Acts chapter 16 almost a replay of that. Not from another Jewish person, but from another person who gets a very clear sight of God somehow. And from that very clear sight of God, he gets a very clear sight of himself. This God who is so great and so real and so present that he has just shaken the ground and the building where I am standing. And I have have mistreated his servants. What is he able to do to me for that sin against him? And Besides the fact, I've never recognized him as a god before. I've got all kinds of other gods, and I've never even included him. And all of my gods that I worship as a Roman, I've never even included him as one of my gods. What in the world will he do to me with his power, in his anger, with all of his justice? What will he do to me for all of that? Paul and Silas, is there any possibility, is there any way, is there any hope of mercy for someone like me? And don't you love Paul and Silas's answer? Look at verse 31. Their answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Isn't that beautiful? You remember when the, the lawyer came up to Jesus with the very same question, what must I do to be saved? Is that the answer Jesus gave to him? Did Jesus say, oh, just trust in me, just believe on me and you'll be saved and all the rest of your householder does the same thing? Uh Uh-uh. Jesus told him a bunch of things that he needed to do. Why? What's the difference? Because Jesus knew that lawyer already thought he was doing good works and he just wanted to know the rest of the good works he had to do to make himself righteous. He knew that was just a self-righteous question. Paul and Silas understand what's going on here. This is not a self-righteous man thinking, well, I've been pretty good. I've done a lot of good things. There's probably just one or two other things that I need to do to earn my righteousness. No, 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 no. This is a guy who understands his works have condemned him. His works have put him in a spot before this absolutely awesome God where he deserves to be wiped off the face of the earth and maybe worse for his crimes against this God. Is there any hope of mercy for me? Is there any possible way I can receive compassion or deliverance from this God. And they say, yes, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. This Jesus, believe he's Lord. He's not just a man. He's the son of God, Lord over everything, and believe in what he's done. He's the son of God who came to this earth to be a human being, to live the life that you've already messed up royally, and to die the death that you have earned with your sins before this God. And he, he did it perfectly. He he did it so satisfactorily before the Father that the Father raised him from the dead. No more death necessary. I am satisfied with what you've done as a substitute for sinners. And what happened? The jailer believed, not just the jailer, but his whole household. And I don't know who that means, his wife, his children, maybe grandchildren, maybe servants. But they all heard that message, and they all believed in Jesus Christ. And all of this started where we've gone to with all of these characters. 
It all started with exposure to God, exposure to Jesus Christ. When you see God as he is, when you see Jesus as he is, and the more you see of Jesus as he is, and the more you learn and the more you understand, the stronger your discipleship for him is going to be because the more enthralled you are with him and the more grateful you are to him. And I'll tell you, folks, as I look around at the church today, I see a lot of people who are professing to believe that, But as I watch, I start thinking, why don't you act like you believe what you say you believe? When I watch their lives, I I see something that doesn't look like discipleship. Okay, they make the claim, they show up in a church once in a while, but, but as far as their life, as far as their desires, as far as their thinking, as far as their plans, as far as their actions and their works, it just doesn't look like there's a connection to Jesus there, a discipleship to Jesus. And you say, well, why? What's happening? What's going on? And and the very sobering answer with some of them is they've never had this sight of God. There's never been a time when they saw God so clearly, who he is, what he's like, what he's done before, what he's doing right now, what he says he's going to do in the future, that he's so real and he's so awesome and he's so powerful and he's so worthy and he's so present. They've never seen God so clearly that way that it's shown them so clearly what they are. That they look at this God and suddenly they realize, I have not given this God what he deserves. I have not treated this God as he's worthy of being treated. I've basically lived my life ignoring this this God. And so what does that make me? Where does that leave me? What if I had to stand before this God right now and answer for the way I've treated him? There would be no hope for me. He would treat me as I've acted, as one of his enemies. And he would do away with me in justice in in some way. And so, because of that, they haven't been desperate for salvation. And because of that, Jesus means nothing to them. He's just a name. Give lip service to that name because it brings some earthly benefits in some way, but not adoration and devotion and deep, humble gratitude that that affects the way they feel about him and everything that they do in their life. You don't see that out of their lives because they haven't been exposed to God in that way. There are others in the church who have been exposed to God that way. They've had that experience. They've seen God that way, which has shown them themselves that way. And so they were desperately desperate for salvation. And so they heard this message about Jesus, the Savior, and they were just absolutely overwhelmed that the Son of God would become a human being and live and die for their sins, take their guilt, their crime, their, their condemnation so that they could go free. And they were infatuated with Jesus and obsessed with Jesus and devoted to Jesus. But somewhere along the line, they've forgotten. Somewhere along the line, for some period of time, they've been distracted. And so they're not seeing now. That, that picture of God is, is like when you go on a trip and you take a picture of, of just the most magnificent spot. And you look at it, and, and for the next two or three weeks, you just keep going back to it. Because you want to remember that trip, and you want to remember that spot. But then you put it in a photo album, and you close it, and you put it off on a shelf, and you don't look at that picture for years. And so that spot's not coming to your mind at all. And I think there's a lot of people, a lot of believers, true believers, who saw the picture in the past, And it affected them, and they believed, and they ran to Jesus, and they loved Jesus, and they served Jesus, but 
they haven't been looking at God anymore. They, they, they're, they're not being exposed to God on a regular basis, so they're not being reminded of themselves on a regular basis. So they're not being reminded of Christ and, and the enormity of his sacrifice on their behalf. And so they're not full of gratitude and humility and devotion and adoration. And they're not living their lives to serve him because they're not thinking much about that's why you look around and you see people claiming to be disciples of Jesus Christ, and they probably are, but they don't look like disciples much right now, which just makes this that much more valuable, right? Because what is this for? What did, what did Jesus leave this for? As often as you do this in what? Remembrance of me. He knew we're going to be forgetful. He, he knew us. He, he knew us perfectly. He knew how pathetic I'm going to be, even with his Holy Spirit within me. He knew how easily I'll be distracted to where I think this is so great, and I'm not thinking about his greatness whatsoever. So, here's, here's, here's these crackers, and here's this juice, and you pick it up and you look at it, and it, it, it makes you think. It makes you think of the life of the Son of God as a man, and it makes you think of the blood shed willingly by Christ for those he represented and, and, and his death paying the price that you earned with your own sins. And, and we remember, and the more we remember, the more we appreciate Christ. And the more we appreciate Christ, the more we want to live lives of discipleship on his behalf. Why wouldn't we? He deserves that pleasure from us. He deserves to be recognized through us in that way. He deserves that glory through our actions. He deserves everything that he deserves, everything that he wants, everything that he demands. He deserves it. And why wouldn't we give it to him? Because we're reminded of him and the Father and who we were before they did this for us. So look at the Philippian jailer. Look, look closely at what happened and, and where it came from. He was exposed to God like he had never been exposed to God before. Then he was exposed to Christ like he had never been exposed to Christ before. And that transformation came from that exposure. And immediately he became what I want to be every day. Someone who is now serving Christ's people. Bringing convicted criminals into his own home. And washing their feet and feeding them food. And rejoicing with them immediately after his exposure to Jesus Christ. That's what I want to be every day, don't you? Look at the Philippian jailer. Think. And pray that the Holy Spirit will change us to be like him constantly. Let's pray. Father, we're glad for who you are. We are awestruck. We are intimidated. But we are also humbled that you are as much a God of grace as you are a God of wrath. You are as much a God of mercy as you are a God of justice. And the more I read about how you carry that out for your people, the more blown I am, blown away I am that I'm one of those people. That you would do it for me. That knowing me from before the foundation of time, knowing exactly what I would be and exactly what I would do and exactly how I would treat you and your son, you still chose to send him for me in my place, to treat him as the guilty one, him as having committed the very crimes that I committed against you. 
that you would pour out your wrath and your justice on him and spare me of the very thing. It just boggles my mind. It blows me away. It, 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 I hope all of us feel that way this morning. And, and Father, as we come to, to the Lord's table and we, and we pick up this cracker and we drink this juice, there's just nothing in that humanly that should make, have any profound effect on us at all. But Christ implemented this not for human reasons, but for spiritual things. And though we know he doesn't come here in a different way to be present with us for this, and this food doesn't turn into his body in any way, we still realize that he, he left this because the Holy Spirit will use it for spiritual results. The, the Holy Spirit will use it to teach us, to remind us, to make us think. And the more we think about Christ, the better things get the more we're transformed and the more glory he's going to get from the results of that. So that's what I pray for, Father. I pray that your spirit will, will work through the word and your spirit will work through the Lord's Supper so that Christ gets what he deserves from all of your people. And I pray it in his name. Amen.